You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Directives and policies. Eurocrats take on CSR. Early policy developments. I will use this episode to explore European policies on CSR, which have been evolving for more than a decade now. In 2001, the European Commission issued a green paper on CSR, which, and I quote, provided all interested parties with a platform for further discussion with the goal of policy generation in the CSR area in Europe, end quote. After a year of consultation, the white paper, entitled CSR, A Business Contribution to Sustainable Development, was released and represented the official policy intention of the European Commission in the field of CSR. Both papers were based on a broad consensus and had been debated through a multi-stakeholder process that included companies, business associations, governments, NGOs and trade unions. After the white paper, all seemed to go quiet on the European CSR policy front. Meanwhile, however, there was significant progress on waste management and climate change policy. In terms of waste, the 2002 so-called WE directives made a great leap forward on the restriction of hazardous substances in electrical and electronic equipment, and the introduction of take-back schemes for waste, electrical and electronic equipment. Under this legislation, producers are responsible for taking back and recycling electrical and electronic equipment. This provides incentives to design electrical and electronic equipment in a more environmentally efficient way, taking waste management aspects fully into account. Consumers are able to return their equipment free of charge. In order to prevent the generation of hazardous waste, the directive also required the substitutions of brominated flame retardants and various heavy metals like lead, mercury, cadmium and hexavalent chromium in electrical and electronic equipment put on the market from July 2006. Significant progress was also made on climate change with the 2003 directive laying the foundation for the EU Greenhouse Gas Emission Trading Scheme, which commenced operation in January 2005 as the largest multi-country, multi-sector carbon trading scheme in the world. The aim of the ETS is to help EU member states achieve compliance with their emission reduction targets agreed under the Kyoto Protocol. Allowing participating companies to buy or sell emission allowances means that the targets can be achieved at the least cost. According to the EU ETS, if the scheme had not been adopted, other more costly measures such as carbon taxes would have had to be implemented. In the first phase, between 2005 and 2007, the EU ETS included some 12,000 installations representing approximately 40% of EU carbon dioxide emissions. The trading price of carbon reached a peak of 30 euros per tonne in April 2006, but then collapsed down to 10 cents 
in September 2007, when it became clear that many industries had been given such generous emission caps that there was no need for them to reduce emissions. The second phase between 2008 and 2012 expanded the scope and tightened the rules of the scheme significantly and saw the carbon price rise to over $20 per tonne of carbon dioxide in the first half of 2008, but then fall again below 10 euros when the recession started to bite. Despite these fluctuations, real reductions have been achieved. According to verified EU data from 2008, the ETS saw an emissions reduction of 3%, or 50 million tonnes. The UK's Climate Change Committee projects a carbon price in 2020 of around $22 per tonne, while most market commentators project a price of around or below $30 per tonne during phase three, which is 2013 to 2020. Back in the CSR space, momentum was maintained through the launch in 2005 of the European Roadmap for Businesses in 2010. This was an initiative led by the independent business association CSR Europe, together with its national partner organizations around Europe. The roadmap includes five goals on innovation and entrepreneurship, skills and competence building, equal opportunities and diversity, health and safety, and environmental protection. It also includes five strategies to achieve these goals corporate responsibility in the mainstream of business, stakeholder engagement, leadership and governance, communication and transparency, and business-to-business cooperation and alliances. The European Commission re-entered the fray in March 2006 by establishing the European Alliance on CSR. This is an open alliance of European enterprises launched to further promote and encourage CSR. The Alliance has a political umbrella for CSR initiatives by large companies, small and medium-sized enterprises, and their stakeholders. In 2006, a research report was published by CSR Europe called the European Cartography on CSR Innovations, Gaps, and Future Trends, which was based on an analysis of 545 CSR-related business solutions and 140 networking activities, in 19 EU countries. CSR trends in Europe. Things seemed to go quiet again, and then in May 2010, I was invited to make a presentation on CSR in Brussels to the EU high-level group, comprising 27 member state representatives. The topic of my presentation was CSR and the global financial crisis, and it gave me a fantastic opportunity to talk with some of the people helping to shape the EU agenda. There were a number of trends that I found interesting. The first was that, whereas formerly CSR was discussed purely as a voluntary activity by business, this was especially clear in the EU's policy statement in CSR in 2006, there was now increasing discussion and even demand for what Susan Bird, CSR coordinator in the Directorate General for Employment of the European Commission and part of the EU high-level group on CSR, called a more active role, which may involve conditions being introduced in the future, although this was still up for debate. 
A second insight was how the competitiveness agenda has changed. The first 10-year economic strategy of the European Union, the Lisbon Agenda, which ended in 2010, was all about competitiveness and paid very little attention to CSR issues. However, the 2008 European Competitiveness Report dedicated an entire chapter to CSR, and countries such as Denmark were claiming that responsible green growth was central to its international reputation and hence its competitiveness. This changing emphasis is also reflected in the new Lisbon strategy for 2020, which has as its central goal smart, sustainable and inclusive growth. The studies being commissioned by the high-level group give some indication of where the direction of policy development is headed. In particular, there are research projects on business and human rights, notably about integrating the UN Special Representative John Ruggie's framework, supply chain integrity, CSR reporting, and sustainable and responsible public procurement. On the supply chain work, I interviewed a senior consultancy with the consultancy CREM, who sees a number of trends, including water footprinting, Krem's research reveals that it takes 16,000 litres of water to produce leather products, 2,700 litres to produce a t-shirt, and 2,400 litres to make a hamburger. Palm oil is also high on the agenda, especially the issue of involving small palm oil farmers in the RSPO certification process in Indonesia and Malaysia. The post-consumer supply chain is another focus, such as the e-waste from Europe that ends up in Africa, especially Ghana, where it creates health hazards and environmental challenges. Another area of research that is starting to reveal interesting results is the role of socially responsible investment, or SRI, in Europe. For example, the managing director of Adelphi, which was commissioned to do research for the EU high-level group on CSR, talk to me about studies the company has done in Germany. These found that German SRI funds are no better than non-SRI funds in terms of their portfolio's carbon footprint. Survey results also suggest that while inclusion in SRI funds of big companies give legitimacy to their CSR and climate activities, the impact of SRI is limited to those large companies that are included rather than the broader market. And in Germany, the SRI mutual funds only make up around 0.5% of the total funds, while in companies with SRI investments, these investments only make up around 0.3% of their total investments. Of course, the high-level group faces enormous challenges, as pointed out to me by Thomas Dodd, a CSR coordinator in the European Commission's Directorate General on Enterprise and Business and serving member of the EU high-level group on CSR. How can they have a consistent policy for all member states, bridging the leaders such as Denmark with the laggards, which tend to be the newer EU members? Another serious challenge and a big focus of the high-level group is how to make EU policies on CSR relevant to SMEs, which make up the vast majority of businesses in the European Union. Looking to the future, the Responsible Business 2020 project of the European Alliance is worth watching. Among the trends that Susan Bird sees 
is a greater emphasis on social inclusion and more flexible ways of working, especially using ICT technologies to be creative in making innovative workplace practices. European Union Strategy on CSR After my visit to Brussels, I concluded that the sleeping giant of CSR policy in Europe was awakening and that we should watch this space. As it turned out, we didn't have to wait too long. In October 2011, a renewed EU strategy for 2011 to 2014 for corporate social responsibility was launched. The document itself is only 15 pages long, which is a good thing, and I recommend that everyone reads it. Here, however, I think it is worth presenting and commenting on the 17 actions that Europe intends to implement over the next four years. I will mention the actions extracted verbatim from the strategy and then my brief observation after each. Action 1. Create a multi-stakeholder CSR platform in a number of relevant industrial sectors for enterprises, their workers and other stakeholders to make public commitments on the CSR issues relevant to each sector and jointly monitor progress. Applying CSR at an industry sector level makes a lot of sense and a stakeholder engagement approach is always welcome. The concern is whether this duplicates many similar initiatives that have already taken place by the likes of GRI, WBCST and other industry associations. Action 2. Launch a European award scheme for CSR partnerships between enterprises and other stakeholders. I suppose having the European Union behind an award scheme will give it some gravitas and greater PR mileage but the world is already awash with CSR award schemes. And when I look at the sorts of companies that win these awards, I find they tend to be the usual suspects who are doing little more than strategic CSR when what we really need is more transformative approaches. Action three, address the issue of misleading marketing related to the environmental impacts of products, so-called greenwashing, in the context of the report on the application of unfair commercial practices directive 1814 and consider the need for possible specific measures on this issue. This would be a welcome addition and follows existing best practice in Australia, Canada, Norway and the United Kingdom. In Australia the Trade Practices Act has been modified to include punishment of up to 1.1 million Australian dollars in fines for companies that provide misleading environmental claims. In Norway, car manufacturers are forbidden from claiming that their automobiles are environmentally friendly. Action 4. Initiate an open debate with citizens, enterprises and other stakeholders on the role and potential of business in the 21st century with the aim of encouraging common understanding and expectations and carry out periodic surveys of citizen trust in business and attitudes towards CSR. Okay, nothing to get excited about. Action 5. Launch a process with enterprises and other stakeholders to develop a code of good practice for self and co-regulation exercises which should improve the effectiveness of the CSR process. 
this could be interesting if we're talking about a best practice guideline on what makes good self-regulation. For example, what makes the Forest Stewardship Council a better self-regulatory mechanism than the chemical industry's responsible care initiative? To be honest, though, a lot of this work has already been done by accountability and its suite of AA1000 standards. Action 6. Facilitate the better integration of social and environmental considerations into public procurement as part of the review of public procurement directives without introducing additional administrative burdens for contracting authorities or enterprises and without undermining the principle of awarding contracts to the most economically advantageous tender. How disappointing. By including that last phrase, the message is clear. The lowest price will continue to win the day. It is the get-out clause that public procurement agencies will use repeatedly so that budgets will get precedence over responsibilities, despite the fact that externality costs, those impacts on society and the environment, are not built into tender pricing. Action 7. Consider a requirement on all investment funds and financial institutions to inform all their clients, citizens, enterprises, public authorities, and so on, about any ethical or responsible investment criteria they apply or any standards and codes to which they adhere. Another extremely weak proposal. It doesn't even go so far as the well-established corporate governance principle of comply or explain, which the GRI is pushing for under its integrated reporting strategy. I can't see what this action is going to achieve other than give a few more PR kudos to the SRI savvy funds. Action 8. Provide further financial support for education and training projects on CSR under the EU Lifelong Learning and Youth in Action programs and launch an action to raise the awareness of education professionals and enterprises on the importance of cooperation on CSR. Fair enough. If we can't reshape young minds, we won't reshape future behavior. Action 9. Create, with member states, a peer review mechanism for national CSR policies. The idea of learning from each other is hard to argue against. My view, however, is that these kinds of peer review mechanisms tend to be more about politics than performance. Action 10. The Commission invites member states to develop or update their own plans or national lists of priority actions to promote CSR in support of the Europe 2020 strategy with reference to internationally recognized CSR principles and guidelines and in cooperation with enterprises and other stakeholders, taking into account of the issues raised in this communication. This is an attempt to extend the EU policy on CSR down to a national level. It will keep a few bureaucrats busy, but I won't be holding my breath. I really don't believe we need more policy or legislation on CSR. What we need is to eliminate the contradictory policies, such as fossil fuel subsidies, and focus on more effective regulation of issues, including labour rights, biodiversity loss, and transparency. Action 11. Monitor the commitments made by European enterprises with more than a 1,000 employees to take account 
of internationally recognized CSR principles and guidelines and take account of the ISO 26000 guidance standard on social responsibility in its own operations. Isn't this what the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises has been trying and largely failing to achieve over the last 50 years? For multinationals, this sort of requirement will add nothing to what they are already doing. Maybe a few medium-sized companies will be forced to take a look at ISO 26000 for the first time. Action 12. The Commission invites all large European enterprises to take a commitment to take account of at least one of the following sets of principles and guidelines when developing their approach to CSR. The UN Global Compact, the OECD Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises, or the ISO 26000 Guidance Standard on Social Responsibility. Giving the companies a choice between these very different principles and guidelines is laughable. Through this action, the European Union is suggesting an equivalence between the minimal effort required to sign up to the Global Compact's 10 principles and the 100 pages or so of detailed guidance across seven core areas in ISO 26000. Action 13. The Commission invites all European-based multinational enterprises to make a commitment to respect the ILO Tripartite Declaration of Principles Concerning Multinational Enterprises and Social Policy. This is another action that will probably not achieve much beyond some poor CSR manager being tasked with reading the policy document and cross-referencing it to the company's existing CSR and labour practices. Action 14. Work with social enterprises and stakeholders to develop human rights guidance for a limited number of relevant industrial sectors, as well as guidance for small and medium-sized enterprises based on the UN guiding principles. This is the first of many actions I will expect to emerge from John Ruggie's Protect, Respect and Remedy UN Framework on Business and Human Rights. Action 15, published by the end of 2012, a report on EU priorities in the implementation of the UN Guiding Principles and thereafter to issue periodic progress reports. This looks like an action to keep the CSR Eurocrats in a job. Action 16, the Commission also expects all European enterprises to meet the corporate responsibility to respect human rights as defined in the UN Guiding Principles. It is a great pity that Europe wasn't a bit bolder, requiring companies to conduct human rights due diligence assessments, which was Ruggie's main recommendation to business. Action 17, the last one, invites EU member states to develop by the end of 2012 national plans for the implementation of the UN guiding principles. The final clause simply reinforces the trickle-down approach. The European Union should learn a lesson from the United Kingdom, which, as I mentioned before, tried to politicise CSR by appointing a CSR minister in 2003. It was by all accounts a failure and was withdrawn as a strategy in 2010. Europe has shown policy leadership on many issues, from labour rights and animal rights to environmental management and climate change, However, I can't help but wonder if this new wave of CSR policy development is doing more to confuse and distract than advance the agenda. Time will tell.